0: My old grandmother always used to say, summer friends will melt away like summer snows. But winter friends are friends forever. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. (laughs) Oh yeah, baby! Franklin! Oh my word! Guess who's back? It's Britney, bitch! Is that what you should say? I don't know. It's what Guess the kids who's back? Say. Franklin's back!
1: But not only Jamie Franklin. We've got a podcast speed run oh going. Oh my god! Got, it's a big, strong got- crew here. Who have we got? <laughs>
2: we've
1: got Julio. Julio, say hi. Hi there. Yes. <laughs> Chris. Hi. Say there. hi. <laughs> Hi there. We've got we we've got, we've got the whole gang, This the whole is gang strong, on a speed run.
0: This is a strong space podcast crew, right. isn't it?
1: Yeah, the, it goes out on the 21st. We should mention that that is the winter solstice and also Jupiter and Saturn conjunction that you must go oh, out and yeah. go and see. Beautiful. Once in a lifetime opportunity to see that. But yes, it's the winter solstice. Some people think it's the middle of winter. Some people think it's the start of
2: winter, depending where you are in the world. Now is the winter of our discount tents.
1: Hey. Ah, there we go. There he is. And there's the first joke of there the podcast.
0: That's why he's here. That's why he's here.
1: <laughs> right, uh, right. As it's a speed run, we're, we're going to go straight into space news. Here we space go. Space news. Yeah. Right. Okay. So here we go. This is something that uh, Julio is a bit of an expert on. And he'll cringe Ooh. now. I can see it. Now you're put me on the spot.
0: <laughs> no pressure. Is,
1: um, so, yes, lots of ESA news. My uh, my WhatsApp from Julio was going crazy because he keeps sending me all these ESA news. It was a busy week. It was a busy week. Sabre-powered reusable launcher. ESA have been sort of looking into that and looking into the uh, benefits that it might bring.
3: Yes, we did, uh, we did a system study. Reaction Engines has been working a lot on the on the Sabre engine for a long, long time. Uh, it used to be coupled with the Skylon spacecraft that you guys mentioned lots of times as well. They have been looking into other uses for the Sabre. So there was a study um, just to, to see how it worked with a one or two stage uh, reusable configuration with a sort of space plane at the beginning, but that could have inside a first upper stage in a normal rocket, but it would come out of the uh, of the bay and then it would deploy the satellite. What's is interesting is that from the ESA side, mostly we have always been working with them on the, on the development of the engine. And this is first time that we really look into the whole system um, on my directorate in, in particular. We did a study as well, uh, similar to this one a few years ago. Comparing this uh, on how it would work as if it with Skylon as if it would work as an airplane, uh, as an airline, instead of
1: a um, rocket model. Point to point. It's kind of what Musk wants to do with Starship, but that seems less feasible without wings.
3: It has has some tiny wings.
1: (laughs) Tiny wings. Little ones. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be a little bit stressed with those tiny wings. Jamie. Hello. Can you remember Podcast 100? Oh, I, I do because that surely was the one that we were at the BIS, wasn't it? We're at the BIS. And one of the things that we announced on Podcast 100 on our live show was astronaut Matthias Mara, Matthias Mara being made a, an astronaut, an official ESA astronaut. So yeah. that, that was at that time. So, yeah, he. And and now and now this is super exciting. He's been assigned his first flight, which is aboard a Dragon, which is a oh. crew crew three, which is actually pretty epic, I reckon. And get this for extra epic, it looks like me and Julio might be chatting to him very very soon. I mean, that, right, is, Julio? that is big. Uh, uh, does, wow. know, stress, does Julio know
3: stress, about stress, this? Uh, Stressing the word might. Might, yes. It, it's yes, in the absolutely. plans. We'll see. It's it in works. the plans.
0: We love a challenge. Well, I'll tell you what, Matt. Can you tell me the name of the mission? I can. It's the name of one of your favorite videos, Cosmic Kiss. Oh,
1: yes. I mean, it's been some time <laughs> since I've seen it. But yeah, incredible. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: dear.
2: Chris,
1: do you know anything about Cosmic Kiss?
2: I want to learn as much as I possibly can about Cosmic KISS, please. It That's sounds awesome. like the most
0: insane tribute act of all time, doesn't it? Imagine it, that. It does. It's kind of like a space <laughs> version of, uh, of KISS there. But yeah, I mean, impressive stuff. Yeah. But yeah, what a legend. What
3: is behind the name is a sort of love declaration for space.
0: We're all for it.
3: And uh, But... What I I liked very much about this uh, mission is the patch. Maybe you can add it into the into the show notes because this patch takes inspiration from the Nebra sky disk, which is the oldest known realistic illustration of the night sky.
0: Oh.
1: But oh. not
3: only that, it also is uh, takes it's inspired by the the, the plaques inside the Pioneer and Voyager golden records.
1: that's oh, is, that is, that, is that the gold color in there. Exactly. Uh, that is cool. Yeah. Amazing. I love reading the the thoughts behind each patch. You sort of look at a patch, and I suppose you could dismiss it, but every single patch seems to have a lot of thought going into it.
3: There is a, there is a lot of work behind these things, a lot of uh, symbolism, and, and the name as well. There, there tends to be lots of inputs, uh, sometimes contests. If you look at this one, obviously, KISS. If you look at the patch, the ISS of KISS is highlighted
1: red. Oh my god. Oh god. Ah, oh, that is clever. What <laughs> Oh wow, I hadn't spotted Do you know what? I was looking at why is the K gold? But what I should have been asking is why the is the ISS red?
3: Ah. Oh. And there you go, another acronym.
2: I've got one for Cosmic Kiss. God gave Rocket Roll to you. Oh, oh my god.
1: Oh I mean <laughs> There you go. It's That's incredible. The, that can be the next ESA cover version after they after they <laughs> went Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, you watched I that one? It. Yeah, I watched it. Love I watched it. it.
3: <laughs> you know, I take it, I take it as a challenge. These are the guys from ESA Operations in Germany, the ones that control spacecraft. And, and now I want to get my, my people from the rocket side to do a video. But um, um, I haven't figured out yet on, for what song.
1: Well, we just what- told you. God gave Rocket Roll to you. But, and, and you could call the band Cosmic Kiss. What are you thinking, Julia? We've, we've told you the whole the whole plan. And uh, me, me thinking on Don't Stop Me Now. That's another one. Yeah. That's another one. That's Tim Peake's uh, Spotify uh, edition. There we go. Hey, Matt,
0: to go slightly off tangent, um, I was looking up at the moon last night. Yeah. And it might just be the best moon I've ever seen. Beautiful waxing crescent, totally clear night, cold. Got my binocular, got my space binoculars out. Did
1: you see it? Yes, I did, actually. I did see the moon yesterday because I was looking out for Saturn and Jupiter because it's getting more and more beautiful. But yeah, it it should be tonight and tomorrow. The moon, Saturn and Jupiter will be epic. I've seen a lot of They're great photographs same.
2: already on the interwebs, but uh, yeah, it's been yeah. very cloudy and rainy here in Norway. It's given the country's given me a very wet send off, but uh, oh. yeah. <laughs> it's a shame. But yeah, <laughs> didn't
0: see out Certainly didn't see any Aurora Borealis. I can tell you that much. You know, I saw a photo of Saturn and Jupiter with its four moons, or, or four moons visible, anyway, um, and it was taken on an iPhone that was pushed up against a telescope. I mean, uh, but it was, in, it was so incredible. I just thought, my God, in 20 years' time, how good are the photos going to be?
1: Mm. It's the, the, uh, I interviewed a, a couple of space astronomers and astrophotographers this week. Mm. And yeah, th- their pictures are incredible. They combine painting and astrophotography. So that's, that's one coming out soon. So yeah, I, astrophotography is just getting
0: insane now. <laughs> Nuts, isn't it? <laughs> well, uh, you don't no. really need to spend thousands to get a good image.
1: Yeah I, I I was just thinking of um, cosmic kiss after we've oh, realized yeah. what an ace name that is right did uh, who can tell me out of you 3 what the name of the space force what they're going to call the space force people
3: I got it I got it guardians of the galaxy
1: that yeah no <laughs> no, a- a- amaz- no. Are they actually <laughs> they're going to call them guardians <laughs> this is this is after a year of <laughs> <laughs> this is a year or several years of consultation and yeah. experts and space experts, and they came up with guardians. I I'll leave that up to you to decide. Groot. We are the guardians, so yeah, that's yeah. that's quite cool. Let's do a couple more ESA things because we're never going to do this speed run. If um, ESA plans a demonstration of reusable rockets, yes, have, have, have you guys heard of? Themis, we've mentioned Themis, I think, twice yeah. on the podcast. It's 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 a name that I should imagine is going to start getting used more often, or usually yeah. in relation to Prometheus as well. At the same time,
3: in the relation oh, to Prometheus, very started. good, very good. Yes, we have been doing several activities uh, connected to reusability in one way or another. You guys have heard of Space Rider. We did, uh, we mentioned it last week. You had an interview with with uh, Giorgio Tomino. Uh, we have done other. Activities, mostly within FLPP, Future Launchers, Preparatory Program. Yeah, some of them were like Hopper tests, which were done in in Romania. Um, There is a project called Callisto, in which you have the the JAXA, the Japanese, Germany and, and France working together on that. And now this is like the big brother, Temis. Ariane Group and the French Space Agency CNES has been have been working on this already for one year together, approved and, and added to the ESA portfolio in the last ministerial conference about a year ago. This last week we we finally we signed the contract, and this means that now it becomes part of the ESA portfolio of projects. It's a first stage demonstration. A stress on demonstration. This is not how we're going to finally use it on a, either a future version of an Ariane 6 or Ariane 7 or whatever we we call it. But it's a demonstration of the technology. And then we we build knowledge here in Europe. Uh, we develop industry, and then we see as well if this makes sense for us or not.
1: Ooh, so it's a, so it's a long journey, isn't it? So
3: yes, we are looking into the 2030 more or less
1: to to use it. Do, will we see videos of Landings by European spacecraft anytime soon?
3: I certainly hope so. In the, if I remember correctly from uh, what we wrote, twenty twenty three, twenty twenty four, there should be some hop tests in Sweden. I publish a, a very nice. <laughs> I'm saying that my own, my own, <laughs> my own diagram is very nice.
2: Goodbye. It's beautiful. You say well, so I, yourself.
3: I didn't do it. I, I got it from the project, and I really liked it. Uh, I think they did a very nice job. It's. It was prepared by a, by a, an organization called Ariane Works because you know we we like to. To mix all these organizations together, Ariane Works is a, like a joint venture between Ariane Group and the French Space Agency CNES. According to this, we d- will do some hop tests in the year 2022 in uh, Kiruna, in Sweden, and after that we will move to Kourou in French Guiana. I think you 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 might have been there, Matt. Oh yeah. We'll oh do yeah. Uh, longer flights, more tests. 2025, we will do a full full test. What we're trying to do here is trying to get. Developing different building blocks. In a few years, we need to decide what the ne- what we do after Ariane Six or what we do after Vega C. We have already developed some of these building blocks, and we can put together the next the next rocket like a like a Lego. You have your parts already developed or pre-made or the technology pre-made, and then you can mix them together much faster than if you have to start everything from scratch.
1: That's actually really exciting. It's it's almost like all rockets are going to start to be flown and landed soon
3: yeah but as you see it's not the only thing we are testing we are also looking into saber as we discussed earlier today space rider Uh, there are there are many different approaches to reusability and we are looking at some of them
1: what about space elevators
3: you had a podcast on space elevators yeah that's what that's what i I translated a book on space elevators like 10 years ago that was like my first paycheck it related to space, um, I love the concept of space elevators. Um, definitely not updated on the latest to know if it's uh, feasible from the materials point of view or not. And then from the design, as usual, the devil is in the details. Okay, the concept of how a rocket works is very simple, but then to make a rocket work can be can get very very complicated. There are many <laughs> things to to take into account. So. I think we are now at that stage on the on the space elevator in which yes you can you can define the system but the day that you have to start building it you are going to run into so many unexpected things as with any big project, any big project. Um, I'm sure the, the Egyptians had this trouble when building the pyramids. You know, They said, well, well let's build this simple triangle. And then <laughs> probably when they started building it, they realized it was yeah. a little bit more complicated.
2: Yeah, but they did. They it. had a large, uh, large amount of slaves on hand, though that was the main uh, advantage that they, <laughs> they had. did. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately, the slave
1: sort of pays, plays into the first rockets as well. But let's not go into that. <laughs>
2: <No>. <laughs> happy, very... happy Christmas, everyone! <laughs>
1: yeah, it's, it's
0: all very difficult. God bless us, so, everyone!
1: La- last bit of ESA news: we, we've got uh, a new uh, Director General, Doctor Joseph Ashbacher. I'm assuming that's he's German. Is that right? Who? No, he's Austrian. Austrian. I'm very sorry. I'm very classic sorry. mistake. Cla- that is a classic mistake. A German um, Jan Werner, our current. Uh,
3: director
1: right. general is German. Ah, right. Okay. Uh, but this, this guy, I, I, I believe is, he's, he's kind of made his way up through the ranks. He's been staff as director of earth observation and he's made his way all the way through. And now by yes. the 30th of June, he's going to be.
3: Yes. In fact, I, I was, I was just reading now that he started at ISA as a young graduate trainee So in your early twenties, right after school, you can you can join ESA in one of these two-year programs, and this is like how many people working at ESA have started. So this is a guy has made it through the ranks. I interacted with him only briefly. Only always a very very pleasant guy. Uh, I look forward to see what he does. He has been a huge success with uh, with dealing with ESA dealing with the Copernicus program.
1: Yeah, well, Copernicus is amazing, isn't it? So. If he does, mm. if he if he makes ESA as good as Cop- Copernicus, then boom, we're done now.
3: What excites You're me. As, now. What <laughs> excites me as well is that he always put a lot of emphasis in the importance of communications, on on telling the public, uh, on communicating with the public. And well, as you know, I'm, I I liked working in that area, so I, I look forward to see how he brings this to to the big ESA picture.
1: Right, so the space awards twenty twenty
2: Whoa! Oh. yes, <laughs>
1: here we go here yeah. we go go. Oh, I'm actually quite surprised by some of these results. Mm. I'm actually quite surprised by but but they were pretty pretty unanimous these these as in whoever won each category did it by quite a a margin.
2: There'll be those thousand votes I put in for each. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I did actually discount your vote, Chris. Oh, I, hey. I did notice it. I did notice it come in, but I discounted it because I, I, I thought if because then I'd start voting. Jamie yeah, would fair. start voting. I fair. did Is put it? I did put Brian Cox's vote towards it, but it didn't make any difference. It didn't even his one didn't even get his his vote didn't even get in the top three. So Ooh. Jamie, as Hello. promised to the readers, you're going to read out the space awards. But before oh, we b- before be an honor. before we start Jamie tell us a little bit about your life in between episode 200
0: and 200, 216 because there's quite a lot to tell isn't there There is a lot to tell yeah it's pretty crazy <laughs> um I don't even know where to start really but it's been fun I've been making I've been learning how to record music into my computer now all the kids <laughs> are doing it um, and uh yeah I've written about I've written four or five very average uh, songs without words yet mm-hmm. but as soon as they're done i'll send them across to you but of of course there has to be a seventh now that i've heard of cosmic kiss oh yes <laughs> you know you like i mean lot. that's got to be the name of my solo project surely th- um but yeah it's been fun um yeah i mean i've just uh, i've missed all you guys and, and it's nice to kind of come back and i tell you what matt what an episode to come back on eh oh uh, the space we got award. quite the guest oh, oh my god so yes the guest is the guest is insane the guest is yeah. yeah, massive. If you'd have told me that when I was when I was about eleven, uh, if you'd have told me that I would be introduced to my space hero by Nick Rhodes from Duran Duran, I'd have said you were absolutely mental. Is that but how that's is, what
1: that, happened, is that is that
0: how we met? That's- <laughs> <laughs> oh. See what he's done there. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, that's how um, that's how it happened. So yeah, old. Old Coxie, he's been on our number one list, hasn't he, Matt? For four, over four years. And mm-hmm. um, we eventually got him via the help of an 80s uh, synth legend. Yeah, that is
1: quite, that's quite. A, so there I mean, we the go. Nick, it came Nick,
0: full circle.
1: Nick Rhodes Clang. Okay, then. So, yeah. Jamie, we've got yes. four categories. Um, we have. Yeah, so do you want to read out the best space event? In reverse Here order from
0: third position onwards. Here we go. Best space event. Number three, we have Starship
1: Hop. I can't believe that didn't win. <laughs> I just Number can't believe three, it. it didn't eh? even
0: come close to winning either. I mean, blimey. Here we go. In second place, we have Chang'e 5's landing on the moon. Yeah, so, as, and we do have to
1: mention that Chang'e 5. Brought back lunar samples, so that that whole mission was a complete success. They've actually brought back moon rock.
2: That's just insane. I
0: mean, uh, yeah, it is ridiculous. One of the headlines
2: I saw was "Moon rock found inside capsule of Shaddies." <laughs> <the Chinese." laughs> yeah. It was just like, oh come on, <laughs> yeah, that's what they were expecting really? to find.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. always a little bit disappointing. So, who won,
0: Jamie? What? One. Okay, ready? And first place, Matt, was Crew Demo 2 and Crew 1. Yeah, absolutely smashed it. It, it,
1: Literally, 90% of the votes were for that. So, obviously, that's the thing that... Yeah. So, better than the belly flop, better than Moon sample return was the return of American space flight and commercial space flight at that to the ISS. So exciting.
0: So, best space legend. Coming in in joint second... (gasps) Is Christina Koch and Victor Glover. Oh, I must admit, that surprised me. I was surprised. Me. Which means it's uh, everyone charge Every, their drinks. Everyone it's get ready. It's at first place, Mr. Elon Musk. Drink! Drink! Drink. Here we go. My wife's
2: just go. bringing me a beer now. <laughs> there we go. Perfect.
0: Perfect. Perfect.
1: Now, this one did surprise me. Not. So, here we go. Best rocket, Jamie. Your favorite, your favorite category. Here we
0: go. Third place, we've got the yep. Electron. Second place, the Long March Five, mm. and of course, in first place, again Falcon Nine. Drift. Falcon Boom. Nine, <laughs> yes, I
2: got it.
0: Yeah, it's killing it. <laughs> there we Absolutely go, killing it. Yep. Matt, what about best bit of space science?
1: Well, best bit of space science in third, third place. In third place was finding an FRB in our own galaxy. Yeah, it's not,
0: not bad, is That's, it? That
1: that was pretty yeah, so that was a couple of weeks ago. But it's a it's a joint winner. Literally, no it was they had equal votes. Did we between just go them. from third to first? So we've gone from third to first. Yeah, because Okay. Well I mean I'm all for well, it. Well, there's a joint winner. That eh? that so you're third, aren't you, if you if there's a joint winner.
0: Well, we're gonna have to pick our favourite one. Oh, so there, it goes down to the it goes down to the judges. It's gotta be. So we've got a choice of Hayabusa sample return and phosphine in Venus's clouds. Oh, what are we saying, Julio? What you saying, phosphine? phosphine? Chris, Julio's going phosphine. Chris, phosphine. Phosphine as well.
3: If we can, if, if, this will define future missions. And if imagine if we find life in Venus, it just Amazing. changes everything.
0: Yeah, <laughs> everything. True. So there we go. It's a jo- it's a it's a double one, Matt. What do you reckon? Well, I'm going to go with higher booster
1: sample return because phosphine is not looking. It's not necessarily right. There, there's there's a well, little bit of a question. We actually mark. had that.
0: We had that confirmed by Professor Brian. Cox, yeah, didn't so,
1: we? so Brian was not a massive fan of the phosphine one. Can I change so, my voice? So Jamie, you have the you you actually have. Right. I've got the casting You've vote. You've got the casting vote. You can throw it
0: back into the <laughs> into a drawer. Oh my god. Well, only because Professor Brian Cox was on the fence about it. I'm gonna go with Higher Yeah! Oh, wow.
1: Yeah, higher booster. That's how we roll. Yeah. Ayabusa. (laughs) Well done, Jaxa, because I think that that is one of the best
0: missions. Incredible stuff. Well, thanks to everyone that voted, eh?
1: Oh, my God. Not only that, everyone had a little chance to write something at the end, and there were some really, really nice comments. And so I I thought I'd read out Todd Barnell's. And he said, Thanks so much for all you do, all the energy you put into this show, and all the hope and awe you help us feel. I'm awfully proud to be a Patreon. So, I can be a tiny part of the awesomeness. So, I thought I'd read that out to you guys
0: as part of the. That is incredible. It's
1: part of the Interplanetary Podcast and what it means to other people listening out there in in the wide world. I think it's It's a bit
2: dusty in this room.
0: (laughs) 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 You got something in your eye, Chris? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) That's
2: lovely. That's lovely. Do you know what? We I
0: had loads
1: lined up for this episode, but I think the Brian, Cox, um, the Brian Cox interview is so long, we're going to have to pass over the fact that the Big Bang has been confirmed by some Australians out in the outback. And we're going to have to pass over the fact that there's been a tantalising radio signal from Proxima Centauri <laughs> as well. That, you know, yeah, I know, I know. Another, Cue the tabloids. Another wow signal. Highly unlikely to be um, <laughs> aliens, as Lewis Dartnell pointed out in The Guardian, which I thought was quite funny. Uh, and, uh,
3: and we will be briefly touch on the fact that China managed to get uh, lunar samples back on Earth.
0: That's huge. Oh, yes, very true, because that is insane. I
1: do think that the Chang'e 5 mission is one of the best things that's happened this year it's 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 huge it's huge it is absolutely huge yeah, yeah yeah no
3: you have only the americans and the russians that have done this in, in the past
1: yeah but there, but there's some extra bits isn't there the, the fact that they were able to rendezvous they were able to land on the moon take back off rendezvous in orbit and come back means that the chinese have got all the technology and all the know-how to be able to do manned missions to the moon you know it's huge mm. not just the sample return but everything else It's epic Superb. I used to have a teacher called
0: Ron Davu. Weird, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. I think he was French. Did you have little uh, Ron Did you have little secret uh, trysts with him behind the bike sheds? (laughs) (laughs) You can't speak about that. I'll get in trouble. All right. So where are we at, Matt? Um, Let's wrap this up. Should we? uh, Should we? Well, should we introduce the guest? Yeah. Let's let's do it. For for us Brits, I mean, he. Well, I, I guess he
1: must be the most famous science communicator in the world. Maybe Niels deGrasse Tyson is the is the is the one up against him, isn't he? Really. Mm-hmm. So, but it could be. He's he's what a lovely. I have to say, Jamie, I could not believe I was blown over by a how knowledgeable knowledgeable he was. I mean, he yeah. he could talk about any subject that we threw at him in great detail. I mean, he he, he is proper on it. He's including, he's, as we'll find out, synthesizers, even synthesizers, <laughs> and <laughs> taking them apart. Yeah. and uh, and also, yeah, he um he was just a lovely, lovely bloke who, a, who absolutely, absolutely loved it.
0: He loved talking yeah. about science. So that was he really brilliant. seemed to enjoy it, and and just a, a joy to to have him come on, be really generous with his time you know, because a lot of people like that sometimes give you 20 minutes max, but an hour and 15. And um, yeah, it was an absolute joy. So we were punching the air, weren't we, Matt, yeah. at the end? I mean, if it, so we hope you enjoy it as much as we do. Yeah, if anything, we finished
1: it, didn't we? I reckon we could have had him on all day. <laughs> <laughs> he, just lo- <laughs> he just loves talking about science. So uh, yeah, a kootay. Roll it. The Interplanetary Podcast,
0: putting the ace back into space. We are joined by the one and only Professor Brian Cox. Brian, thank you for joining us. Absolute pleasure. This is really exciting. I think one place I wanted to start was when I knew that you'd accepted the interview, I went into a deep dive on YouTube, which is good and bad. <laughs> but but one of the good things is I got to, to hear a lot about, I know that Matt, who is obviously our co-host here, and uh, and your heroes is Richard Feynman. Yeah. and i went to read cuz i hadn't read the value of science and i know that it crops up a few times in in some of your lectures and it blew me away and i can see why you're so enamored with it and and that some of the quotes in there um and actually one that really stuck out with me was was him when he said he's standing at the shoreline alone and he's looking out at the sea and he and he describes the sea being tortured by energy um, thinking of the billions of years that have gone past with no one to entertain. I just thought, what a quote. And yeah. as, as you mentioned a couple of times, the satisfactory philosophy of ignorance, just, just incredible way to, to sort of shine a light on the doubt being okay. Yeah, it's, it's really important. I mean, he
4: wrote that, the context is, he wrote, it, it was a speech he gave in 1955, and it was off the back of the Manhattan Project. Um, and actually, Oppenheimer, who ran the Manhattan Project, gave was doing similar things. There's, there's a BBC Reth lecture from 1953 where Oppenheimer says similar things that they both were surprised they were still alive um, because they delivered this power to politicians, and they were both deeply suspicious of authority and politicians. Actually, not surprisingly, if you'd grown up through those times, and um, so they were reflecting on the value of civilization as well. And as, as Feynman says at the end, what's the most important thing that science teaches you? It is humility, and that's surprising to some people because I think there's a view of scientists that we're, we're kind of there's some arrogance. You know, you pass these truths down from this mountain, and you go well, if you don't if you don't believe that the Earth is a sphere, then you're an idiot. You know, we should probably you probably are in that case probably a bad example but anyway. <laughs> but you know that, you know what I mean. It's kind of this yeah. when actually as Feynman points out. Um, science is is about doubt, in the sense that you have to recognise what you don't know in order to make progress, because if you think you know everything, then you don't do any research, you don't do anything. And that not just, doesn't just apply to science, it, it applies to politics, as Feynman says. I, mean, the, I love the bit in that essay where he says that democracy is a satisfactory philosophy mm. of ignorance, because in order to uh, be democratic, You have to understand that you change your mind. Power shifts from one group to the next. That's an admission that you don't know how to run a society. And that's not a negative thing. It's an extremely positive thing, obviously. In democracy, the most important bit of democracy is the peaceful transfer of power. Uh, The fact that sometimes the power goes to people you don't like and sometimes it goes to people you do like is kind of secondary. The point is that we recognise the fact we don't know how to do it, and that's what I think is is a very deep realisation. Oppenheimer says the same thing, and it's interesting that we find ourselves in a time perhaps where we have to remember that, you know, there's a lot of certainty in politics at the moment. So, you know, <laughs> in the US and elsewhere, there are a lot of people who are in politics who think they're right, and actually the the fundamental point that, that Feynman's essay is nature hammers it into your head, especially when you're a research scientist and a postdoc and doing a PhD and so on. It hammers it into your head that you're usually wrong, right? almost mm-hmm. always. Every scientist I know is wrong doing research, you know, probably 99% of the time. But the point is that science is a mechanism to allow you to get to the 1% bit where you're mm-hmm. not wrong. You're not absolutely right. Never. Absolutely right. But at least you're not wrong. What's remarkable
1: about Feynman is that he's so down to earth about it, isn't he, as well? His two biographies, the, the uh, Surely You're Joking and the other one, I keep rereading them because I, I, I just think mm. they're just unbelievably fantastic books. You know, in, yeah. in, Just just as almost like as a philosophy of a, of a way of living, more, more than just the science in them as well, because I, yeah. I, I think he's got... He really sort of understands that. But while we're on the philosophy of science, I've, I've got a question that, that I didn't actually mean to drop in so early because it's, it's, quite, it's, it's, kind, <laughs> of di- it's kind of deep. And, and obviously, as a sort of podcast host, I realise I'm, I'm probably batting well, way above my weight here. It's a, it's a classic example of the Dunning-Kruger. But the last sort of 25 years of, say, particle physics, I think have been really disappointing if you compare it to, say, astrophysics or something like that, where we're clearly in a golden age of of discovery after mm. discovery after discovery, and, and particle physics with the Large Hadron Collider, yeah, you've got the the Higgs boson, but it's been a bit of a disappointment from there. So Some people call it the nightmare scenario. But is, is that down to a philosophical mistake that people are coming up with lots and lots of different hypotheses for what, say, something like dark matter is or all these other... And, and just assuming that the, the, the standard model of particle physics isn't doesn't look good, it doesn't feel like it's you know it's really awkward, and therefore there must be something there must be something more to it that we're missing, and and this drives them to to, to put their hand out and say we need to build a bigger larger Hadron Collider. Is I know there's a load to unpack there, but what are yeah. your thoughts
4: on on, yeah. on all that element of it all? Well, the, the kind of first thing, the preamble to, to your question is, of <laughs> course, as many people have said, uh, n- nature really doesn't care what our expectations are. What we're doing is exploring nature. So we, we discover nature as as it is. And um, if it's not, it's usually much more interesting than we can possibly imagine. If it turns out to be less interesting, then that's just tough because that's <laughs> what nature is. Uh, but you're right, in particle physics, um, the, the, we build big machines. So, there's a business element to this, right? If you're going to build a large Hadron Collider, the most complex machine ever built by some measure, um, then you have to know, you have to have a case for building it. And it was very clear with the LHC. And the the case was that if you look at the standard model, which, as you describe, is, is our model of all the interactions, the the three forces of nature other than gravity that we know about, fundamental forces, so the weak nuclear force, strong force and electromagnetism. It's a model that works, but it does not work at LHC energies without a Higgs or something else that does the job of the Higgs. So what we had was a very clear, the jargon is energy scale, but we, we knew that if we bang hit protons together at these energies, we would either discover the Higgs, or a variant of a Higgs, or something else that does the job. So you know you're going to add to human knowledge by building that machine. And so that's why it was built, and indeed it did. Right? So yeah. what we discovered was that, the, as far as we can tell, the simplest model, which is the standard model Higgs particle, it's called, appears to be the way that nature operates. It didn't have to be the case, and actually, my most cited paper, which is got it's it's really a very successful paper now. Actually, I think it's six seven hundred cited. I can't remember what it is, but it is is basically about physics at the LHC without a Higgs particle, right? And it, it's a <laughs> successful paper because uh, it was written back in two thousand and one, I think something like that. So we didn't know, but it developed some experimental techniques that are widely used now. So it's a you know that's why it's successful. But it was a very real possibility that we would discover something else. Um, Just a very simple, you might say, how do you know, by the way, that a theory breaks down? Uh, Basically, it was predicting probabilities greater than one that things would happen. So the Higgs, the the fancy word is it unitarizes the WW scattering cross-section for people that (laughs) want to know. But but it basically meant that if all else failed, if you bang these particles called W particles together, and you can't make a higgs particle you've got to make something in there, something new that basically was the the point and um, so but you're right, so now we have um a model with the standard model Higgs, and it doesn't tell you where new physics appears right it, it, we're We're very sure that it's not it is not i mean it's not it is not a complete model. of of the universe at some fundamental level. So there is something else, there is new physics, but we don't have a very clear indication of where that is. So that means that you don't know how big or powerful the next machine has to be to guarantee that you'll discover something else. Um, So that's probably, you're right, a position that we haven't been, been in in particle physics for a long time. It's not to say that we won't get a signpost from LHC. So, LHC has not taken, it's taken just a few percent of its design data. And really, so now we move into a, we're still searching for new physics, uh, new particles that we've not yet seen, uh, because it might be that they're, they're made, it's very unlikely you'll make them. So, you have to get a lot of data to find them, to find a clear signal. So, we're still doing that. Um, but it also, the other way you can do particle physics is to make precision measurements, very high precision measurements of, in this case, for example, the way the Higgs particle behaves. And that's what we're doing. And in those precision measurements, it, it has happened in the history of particle physics, that you see something that is anomalous, that stops behaving as you think it should, and that's the sign of new physics. And that, the, that can tell you, that can be a signpost to where you need to go next. Uh, but as you say, um, in the absence of that, the, the what you can do is say, okay, we're going to explore the Higgs particle then, for example, very carefully. So we'll build a, a machine that makes Higgs particles very cleanly. That would be the, a linear collider that people talk about, where you bang electrons together instead of protons. And I should say, those listeners who aren't familiar with all this jargon, <laughs> protons are enormous things full of stuff, right? They're messy, Um, huge things in terms of particle physics. So when you smash them together, yes, you get some nice, clean production of something like a Higgs particle sometimes, but also you get debris scattered over the place. Uh, And it's a complete mess. And a lot of the work in particle physics is getting rid of all the mess, the noise, so that you can see the bit that you're interested in. Um, With electron colliders, electrons, as far as we know, as far as we can tell, have no substructure at all. They're just things that beautifully, cleanly bang together and cleanly make whatever it is that you might make. So the, the, the standard kind of idea in particle physics is electron colliders are easier to do precision physics and proton colliders are easier because you can get higher energies to discover stuff. Not quite true. And if some <laughs> LHC people are listening, get, they, they get very upset because, because it is true now that we are so good it's experimentally that we can do real precision measurements with proton colliders, but they're quite messy. I think no one would disagree with that
1: yeah i mean do do you think that some particle physicists oversell the because i mean just listening to you then it 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 seemed to me and, and obviously you can correct me is is that without the new signposts really asking for the bigger machine seems to be a tall order, because you're saying, yeah, we're not quite sure where we're supposed to be going with this, but let's just build something bigger. No, and I've got, obviously, I love it when science asks for money, because after all, it's their money at the end of the day, it's generated Mm. by, all the wealth has been generated Mm. by it, but it's like, but is there better projects that that that
4: money could go on? Well, it's it's always the, um, you know, it's very complicated when you assess big international projects, Um, and you're right, and then so there, there is a there's a very good science case you can make because we, we know we know what measurements in the absence of any signposts we know what measurements we should be focusing on to 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 make the the, the useful precision measurements that will yeah you, know, you would guess will open the road to new physics right so so you can make very nice arguments about big machines. Um, but you're right, so you're asking a question really about how do you make decisions internationally about which projects to, to build, and there's, there's there are clear science cases, for example, as you said, we'll talk about it, you know, gravitational wave physics is tremendously exciting and productive at the moment, and I think the case for a big gravitational wave detector in space is, to me, overwhelming. Um, also, looking at the cosmic microwave background, which we'll probably talk about as well, These these collecting the oldest light in the universe from close to the Big Bang, very strong case for making high precision measurements of that. So, uh, But there's there's also a case for the, going at the other end of the scale, which has been tremendously productive for the last 50 years or more, uh, of, of exploring the Higgs particle. Now, the Higgs particle is a completely new sort of particle. It's what's what we call a fundamental scalar in nature. And it brings with it a whole load of baggage that that is very difficult to understand that the standard model itself is ultra fine tuned we call it so it, it's all very delicately balanced and it th- this leads into issues about the stability of the universe as a whole actually i don't mm. i'm not scaring people here it's not, <laughs> the universe is going to fall a bit, yeah but over long time scales there's a thing we call it the, the this are we in a false vacuum state all these things so um so there's a, t- a load of fundamental physics there um One of the things you have to think about when you think about new colliders, and we've seen it actually, is that particle physics, building particle accelerators is as much of an art as a science. Um, And you see this when you see, well, I I was very heavily involved in a project called FP420 a long time ago at the LHC, where we were trying to modify uh, part of the LHC to put detectors very close to the particle beams, which is still a very nice project, actually. And we've done it partially at LHC, but we haven't done the full thing that we'd hoped to do. But that um, meant I got very involved with accelerator physicists. And you find that there's, yeah, I bet you, we tough. it's like building synthesizers, I reckon, <laughs> in that you, there, there's, a, there's a huge amount of experience involved. It's it's, like, it's also like building a Saturn V rocket, by the way. Mm. You wanted to build one of those, you'd struggle now. It, we have different ways of doing the, it. But there's, there's a there's a continuity of expertise that if you lose it, it is extremely difficult to get it back, mm. and so um, I think that there are strong cases scientifically to be made for, for new particle accelerators. But there's also other considerations. There are very strong. There's a very strong idea that we do need to be able to build particle accelerators. I mean, they they're widely used in medical physics, for example, and 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 so I think it's it's difficult how you choose these next big projects. I think CERN by the way, is, a, is the way to do this, because it's, it's a lot of countries contributing a little. And, and it, you know it looks expensive because it's a big machine. By some measure, it's expensive. But its budget is actually less than the University of Manchester's budget, <laughs> right? Yeah, so it's, it's less crazy. than the budget of a medium-sized European university. Um, but because everybody pays in, and it's focused on one thing, which is the exploration of nature, the smallest distance scales and the highest energies, uh, you can do it collaboratively um, without without really impacting too much on national science budgets. And also I should say, of course, that CERN it, it almost doesn't need to justify itself in a sense of you say what's it what's it done for us? You know, what have the Romans done for us? You just you, you can stop at the World Wide Web. Yeah. Right. I mean <laughs> yeah. it's done a lot more than that. It's hey, done a ton stop. more than that. But we the, yeah. the, the, the conversation is gone. There's a great. I just said it's a great um, document in the archive at CERN, by the way, uh, which Tim Berners-Lee uh, uses in his talks. Which is a it's a piece of paper. I think it's 1989 or something. I can't remember. It's 87, 89. and it says the, um, the World Wide Web and Information Management Proposal. Right, so it's his thing that he wrote to his manager. Then I've got an idea. Right, I've got this thing, <laughs> the World Wide Web. And his manager wrote vague but exciting on it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's in the archive. It's in Penton yeah. oh, wow, like, oh, my but God. Exciting. The key point See is, after carry class. on. Wow, yeah, carry that's on. It, you know, carry on. I don't really get it. He's basically I don't really get this. But uh, why not? Yeah. You know, we're a research lab. Have a go. <laughs> <We'll> <laughs> See yeah, what happens. Which is exactly what yeah. I meant by the sort of that science should never sort of
1: feel like it needs to be, have the begging bowl because it's like it, it's like, well,
4: all this money, by the way, that we're asking for, we, we kind of generated. <laughs> yeah, and someone tweeted, So, what day, what day is it today? The 16th of December we're recording this. I, I saw a tweet this morning from a, an, an American um, uh, epidemiologist. No, he's a vaccine expert, professor, uh, expert in vaccines. Mm. I don't know him. But he just came up on Twitter. But he just said that all those people are calling this vaccine a miracle are wrong. Mm. Like it's built on decades of fundamental curiosity-led research. Mm-hmm. That is why, in 12 months, from a new disease appearing in humans to a vaccine, that's why it happened in 12 months. It wasn't a miracle. It wasn't something that came out of the blue. We're not lucky. Mm-hmm. right? We're, it came from decades of investment in curiosity-led research. Tens of thousands of people who've gone through the education system it's the ultimate, you know, Newton's quote, standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm. There can be no better uh, example of that quote than this vaccine development. And it's, uh, you can't, you, the, some of the technologies that were used uh, are technologies that nobody, no matter how smart, would have thought would lead to vaccine development, right? Because they're fundamental knowledge. Things that were invested in because people were interested and curious. No obvious link to the real world at all. Hmm. But all that stuff feeds into something that turns out to be useful. Same with CERN. Um, you know, the, the, the spin-off technologies no one could have pre- predicted. So the World Wide Web being one. Uh, the use of accelerators in um, medical physics, um, you know, now cancer treatment, proton hadron beam therapy or proton beam therapy, which some people may have had direct experience of, in fact, it, life-saving treatments. They used particle accelerators. We didn't start building particle accelerators to do medicine. Hmm. You know, we started them because we were interested in hmm. the structure of atoms and the structure of the nucleus and so on. I mean, Rutherford in Manchester, right? He said, essentially he didn't have a particle <laughs> accelerator, but he kind of used a natural one to bounce alpha particles off some gold foil to discover the nucleus. Right? Yeah. And from yeah. then on, you say, well, can I build some technology to get faster alpha particles or faster probes of matter? And suddenly you work out to build particle accelerators, and then you find out that they're really useful. If you fire proton beams into, into towards tumours, they can destroy the tumour.
0: Yep. Yeah. So, so talking of CERN, Brian, what's the current biggest challenge at, at CERN?
4: Well, I think it's um, what, what we do always in particle physics is we... We we want the the what matters is the energy of the collisions, which is pretty much set by the machine, right? So you can't really introduce increase the energy, but you can intr- increase the number of collisions per second, um, and that gives you because particle physics is statistical, so you it's you know one in ten trillion or whatever it is, I can't remember the number of collisions you get a Higgs particle. So the more collisions I can have, the more Higgs particles I make, and the the easier it is to study them. Um, so the more collisions per second, the, the the easier it is to make precision measurements and make discoveries. Except that the more collisions you have per second, the more messy it is. And so the accelerator physicist will deliver you more collisions per second and you get loads of particles colliding. So it's almost as if every photograph you take, you have not one Proton collision, but like thirty collisions, so you get. And um, there's only one of them that you're interested in. The rest is a mess. So then the experimenters have to get better at data analysis and and upgrade the detectors, which are the cameras, in order to pick out the interesting stuff. There's more interesting stuff, but it's filled with more noise. And so, it's an ongoing challenge, really. So we, um, so that, those are the 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 real world practical challenges. Um, uh, So we want to get more data and get better at looking at these very complicated photographs and seeing the thing we're interested in and measuring it more carefully. Ultimately, the hope is that we see a sign of something new. And we're we're nowhere near the level where we think we won't see anything (laughs) new. Uh, We're nowhere near that with with LHC at the moment. Hmm. Is the problem in
1: particle physics in particular? Is it is it a lack of theories or a lack of data? At it's the moment, it's not a lack of theories. There are <laughs> loads. Of them.
4: But it's a good question. I mean, I, I think actually, um, it's better to just look at physics as a whole. Um, right. I mean, particle physics and cosmology now are, are very closely intertwined. And also, there are other measurement, non accelerator based measurements. There are. There's a very interesting measurement at the moment um, at Fermilab in Chicago, which is the, the way that muons, which are heavy electrons, uh, behave in magnetic fields. And there's some deviation from the prediction of the standard model in that data, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, so so it's, it's really what were all these measurements, so measurements of coming now from precision cosmology of the early universe, Um, and particle physics and the non-accelerator-based particle physics, particle astrophysics, which is looking at things Mm. called neutrinos that come from space, for example. All these things are uh, ultimately intertwined together. And ultimately, we're probing nature in different ways, at different energy scales and so on. But ultimately, you're trying to crack, you're trying to break our picture of nature, which is at the moment pretty consistent. With some very obvious examples that are not consistent, right? There's some really <laughs> obvious problems that we can talk about. So, so we know there's a lack of understanding. We have a relatively consistent picture with the experimental data we've got. So, the answer to your question is: it. What you do is we know where the we know where the things break down. We know where the gaps are in our knowledge, broadly speaking. But you're right that. It, it's in science. It's very difficult, I think, if you look at the history of science, to work out whether uh, advances were came first, were seeded first from theory or seeded first from experiment. Mm. You can think of some very clear examples, but I think most of the time it comes from the overall picture. And um, you know, barring some ridiculous discovery that you weren't expecting, <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. This is <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Brian, you mentioned the early universe. How? close do you think we are to being able to see ripples uh, of radio waves from the from the Big Bang?
4: Well, um, so electromagnetic waves you don't see because um, essentially earlier than 380,000 years after the mm. Big Bang, the universe was opaque to light. It was in what's called a plasma state. So the, it means that there are loads of charged particles in a soup it's um, sort of like the inside of a star in some sense, and light doesn't travel through that. It's opaque. So, so you don't see... The, 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 the oldest light, and same for radio waves that you can see, is uh, essentially a, a surface. If you look out into space, you can see light that's coming from a surface, which is the point at which the universe was cold enough for atoms to form right. and the universe to become transparent. And that's called the cosmic microwave background radiation. So that's the furthest back you can see in time using electromagnetic radiation, radio, light, whatever. You can see earlier in two ways. One is theoretically, because the picture, we have a photograph of the universe 13.8 billion years ago, 385,000 years after the (laughs) Big Bang, which has structure in it. It's got patterns in it. And those patterns are well understood. Um, in fact, they, they were predicted remarkably by a theory called inflation, which we can also talk about, and then discovered. So there's a window uh, you can see some structure, and so you have a you can say, well, how did that structure evolve? How did it get there? Um, gravitational waves, on the other hand, you can see in principle from the Big Bang. It's a very violent event that happened a long way away in the in this in this picture. I mean, the Big Bang happened everywhere, right? So every point of space that exists now was at the Big Bang. But the gravitational waves that we're detecting from the Big Bang are those that have traveled across the universe for 13.8 billion years, right? Mm. So they're very faint. They're, they're much fainter than the, the waves we see from black hole collisions. But they're there,
0: right?
4: So, so the way you see further back in time is to build gravitational wave detectors that are sufficiently uh, sensitive, and that must be space-based. I mm. think. So we're looking at the projects that are aiming to build a, essentially laser arrays in space. That's LISA between is that right? satellites. L- yeah, yeah. Mm. So that's one of the proposals to um to to build a, a a machine that's sensitive not only enough to see many more black hole collisions. We we, we should talk about it. Tremendously exciting. Uh, So that's an experimental probe of black holes, Hmm. really, for the first time. You could argue we see them in radio as well. Um, But also to detect these gravitational waves from the Big Bang, that would be great because that's an image, right? It's an image using gravity rather than light of the Big Bang. And we can do that in principle.
1: Hmm. Yeah, so that that, the the, the multi-messenger... Element of 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 physics uh, of astrophysics in particular, and and, and it's just been mm. like incredible, and and that's why that's why I was describing it earlier as the sort of golden age is just it's just mind blowing. Yeah, but it's also I love the fact that things like neutron stars and black holes are that crossover point between particle physics and and. And and the the massive cosmology as well. Yeah. So it's it, so surely like when you're looking at things like that, how much conversation happens between particle physicists and your astrophysicists, like over coffee? Uh, We're talking about the the centres of neutron stars, for example.
4: A, a huge amount is the is the answer. Uh, the best example uh, I can think of, which is the thing that I'm most excited about at the moment, is is in bl- black holes. So black holes. Since the 1970s have been the the point at which particle physicists and people who do quantum mechanics and people who do relativity uh, have been arguing, right? Because there's a very simple, it's a beautifully simple problem, which Stephen Hawking first identified, actually, in the 1970s. Many people have, have, have identified it as the best question <laughs> that's ever been asked in physics. <laughs> one, one of the best, anyway. And it's just very simple. It's... um. It's, it's what, what happens uh, on the event horizon of a black hole? And in particular, Hawking's question was, what happens to information that you throw in? So if you throw a, a book or a hard drive or whatever mm. into a black hole, what happens to it? Um, now, you might say, well, it's locked away forever, so we don't care. What Stephen showed in the 70s was there's a process called Hawking radiation, which means that black holes evaporate. So over a long, long period of time, it's something like 10 to the 120 years, right? so one with 120 knots after it, um, for a for a, blast, a black hole, the mass of a star, you know, a few times the mass of the sun or something like that. So that now the, the universe is 10 to the 10 years old at the moment, one and 10 knots. so <laughs> 10 <laughs> to the 120 is a big number. Yep. <laughs> um, but the point is that in principle, they evaporate, they come back into the universe. they don't last forever. So then you ask, well, so the information doesn't get locked away then, presumably. So what happens? Um, and Hawking, for many years, thought that the information was destroyed. Uh, why? Because he did a particle physics calculation. Um, the, in particle physics, the, the problem, the strange behavior of black holes, is nothing to do with the black hole, right? Really. It's nothing to do with the singularity and all this stuff. It's to do with the event horizon. And the event horizon is the boundary in space. Uh, which is you can think of as a one-way boundary, right? That if you go in, you can't get out, which is the typical, I think, what Mm. most people think of as a black hole. You'd have to travel faster than light. If you go into that region of space, you're always in that region of space. And in fact, what happens if you go into that region of space is you go to the end of time, right? The the singularity is the end of time. So you are going, you you are ending, right? (laughs) According to general relativity, you, you go in, it says, as it's inexorably as you go to tomorrow, you are going to the singularity. And there's a very famous, in one of the great textbooks by Jim Hartle, he says that the singularity is not a place in space, it's a moment in time. Right? So you go to the future, that's it, hmm. you're gone, right? <laughs> that's it. That's what a general relativist would say a black hole is. In particle physics, the, the structure of empty space, the structure of the vacuum, is tremendously important in the way that we do calculations. And what you find is that if you take neighbouring points in space, they're, they're what's called entangled with each other. There's a very important structure there that underlies all of our calculations in quantum field theory. If you stick a boundary in it, then you mess those calculations up. And, and ultimately, this is the, the where Hawking radiation comes from. So you end up producing real particles that go off into space, take energy away from the black hole and it evaporates. So it's a property of the horizon. And the the particle physics, the naive particle physics mechanism for producing that radiation, is that it's got nothing to do at all with the stuff that goes in. It's completely different from, if you burn a book, Right, to be very 2020. <laughs> if you set a book on fire, <laughs> what happens? Um, well, what happens is that if you could collect all the ashes and all the gas and everything and measure everything that came off the book, then in principle you could reconstruct the book. Absolutely fundamental. this determinism in physics, right? It's absolutely fundamental. You could now obviously in practice you can't, but in principle you could. A black hole, because of the way that it produces radiation, naively, in Hawking's original calculation, there's no connection at all between the radiation that comes off and the stuff that goes in. So it looks like the information has been destroyed. When the black hole's gone, you're left only with Hawking radiation and no black hole. It's gone. And the Hawking radiation carries no information about what went into the black hole at all. That was the situation for years, decades, and so, so there's a fundamental clash. The other problem, by the way, is that there's a thing called the equivalence principle, which in, in general relativity is the statement that if you're in free fall, uh, there is no gravitational field experienced. You see it on the International Space Station. like right? why the people float? Why, why is it if you get a pen or something mm. and, and let go of it in, in space in the, on the space station, why does it stay there? And Einstein's um, explanation is because there are no forces acting, nothing's happening. That's the basis of general relativity. The equivalent principle is the statement that if you're in free fall in a gravitational field, it's not there, it's gone. So in general relativity, if you fall across the horizon of a black hole, you don't notice um, with some caveats about the sufficiently big one, (laughs) just for the pedants (laughs) that are listening. but basically, you can ignore tidal forces, yeah. which you can in a big black hole, so the the event horizon is not anything when you freely fall through it. But in quantum mechanics, it's a very important thing because it's 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 a it's a barrier. It's it's a it's a thing that disrupts the vacuum of space. Basically, that it disrupts things. So um, so you've got these two visions, these two views, which are a clash of um theoretical pictures right and that has led i think this year has been momentous because to a large extent that problem has been um not entirely solved but pretty much we we understand what how to solve the problem now and it's remarkable it's a remarkable thing so you might have heard people listening might have heard of things called the holographic principle and um the, the idea that um which comes from something for the more technical minded that's called the ADS CFT correspondence, someone <laughs> called Van Maldacena, was very famous for. It. But anyway, it's basically the point that it was noticed that before it was a fight of black holes, that if you look at um, our, our universe, which is a, a, a four dimensional thing with a gravity and quantum field theory, then the whole thing can be represented. In, in one less dimension, like on the surface. So it's as though you've got a sphere to go to something we can picture, like the Earth, right? And it's as though everything internal to the Earth, everything underneath the surface, all the way to the center, can be described perfectly by a theory that just lives on the surface, right? So there's a there's a one-to-one correspondence. And this is used just as a technical thing in, in particle physics. So people will do calculations on the boundary in one less dimension, and they can do it, and then they'll transform it into the full four-dimensional theory, and go and look at the LHC data, and you get some results that you couldn't have got otherwise. So it's a very weird thing that you've got this physics you can do. You can have the theory expressed in two different ways, and there you can transform between them. That seems to that in black hole language, that has been very useful. Because it it seems to be now there's a strong suggestion that really that in a sense, and I keep using the word in a sense because there's some technicalities, but roughly you're imagining some boundary to the universe away at infinity somehow, but some surface, and that's all there is. And you've got quantum mechanics on that surface, no space and actually probably no time as well. So space, space time isn't in that theory. Just quantum mechanics and the way that things are entangled with each other, and that develops the space. So, it, so space-time emerges from this quantum theory on a boundary, right? Now that's weird, <laughs> and that's where the holographic principle comes in. So you're you you're saying, in a very real sense, that we're holograms, right? That we're not we're not really we're not really seeing the true nature of reality. The true nature of reality is just quantum mechanics space and time aren't in that theory. They come out. They emerge from the theory. So it's almost like the, 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 the interior of the universe d- is developed by the entanglement of quantum fields on the surface somehow. So the surface is somehow the real thing. But the most amazing thing of all is that people have now worked out how to um, decode the information. How is the information stored on the surface? Um, And how does that relate to the interior? And remarkably, the information is stored redundantly on the surface in the same way that we have to store information in quantum computers to correct for errors in the quantum computer. So it's very difficult to do error correction in quantum computing. And and it seems that the same coding mechanism is employed by the universe. What? There's a redundancy. (laughs) There's a redundancy in the way the information is stored. It's quite remarkable. So th- this, this realisation, this swapping between theories and pictures, has been a collaboration, which goes back to your initial question, <laughs> between relativists, people who do general relativity, uh, quantum field theorists and quantum computing experts. And the three uh, disciplines together have now pretty much solved the black hole information paradox. The, the the solution, by the way, is yes, the information comes out. Wow. So that's the answer. It <laughs> comes God. out in the Hawking radiation. But in order to come out, it requires a complete reimagining of our view of space and time. that well, One way to look at it, there's a thing called the ER equals EPR, which is another remarkable thing, where it it's not quite right to say, but again, roughly, you can almost picture wormholes connecting the interior of the black hole to the far distant reaches of the universe. And in some sense, the interior of the black hole is also the far distant reach of the universe. Um, the reality of the wormholes, because we all picture wormholes like Deep Space Nine and stuff like that, and Interstellar. Whether it's they look like wormholes mathematically or they actually are, is an open question. That people are not prepared to approach just yet. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly yeah. in, in in the public papers, people don't think about it, you know, because it's not clear. But but it but it it seems just to finish broadly what happened was Hawking, in his original calculation, missed a bit mathematically. And the bit he missed mathematically, which tells you how the information comes out, is looks like the mathematics of wormholes. So that's the. So I mean, it's very. It's different. There's no real. I'm writing a book on this at the moment, and I haven't quite. We, we, you know that no one's really pub- popularized this science. It's very hard and very new. Mm. So my language is caveated and careful, and uh, but ultimately, w- I hope we'll do it in our book. Right, we've got. An, I'm writing with my friend Jeff Forshaw. Someone needs to do it, but um. But ultimately, the point is that we're getting a, a, an insight through looking at black holes and the problems that they pose into the deeper structure of space and time and actually most likely how it emerges from a quantum theory that does not have space and time in it
0: well I, which is quite yeah
4: remarkable. i
1: mean that 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 seems to be that that almost seems to be sort of monumental cuz cuz I started the year actually with a with a conversation with Jim Al Khalili about 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 this whole idea of quantum physics and general relativity just being completely incompatible. But that sounds like that there's some hope there. Yes, yeah,
4: more than hope. I mean, I think it it's it it seems pretty clear. Wow. That that's what's going on. I think like, <laughs> because ju- just because the the there's a lot of this AdS CFT thing it is. Works right. This framework. I mean, people use it routinely now, and the fact that it's a seems to have this very clear um, application. I suppose is the right word in in, in black hole physics is um, fascinating. which then goes to the which we talked about before. One of the ways that you start to test this stuff is the ultimately the only way, right? I suppose is is to is to make observation, and so the the as we get better at observing black hole collisions. You start to hope that part of this discussion, you may have heard of this thing of firewall, which was one of the previous ideas, which is that a black hole, the event horizon um, is both, you can both cross through it and not. So when viewed from the outside, the idea would be that it's a seething, hot boundary. And so if you watch someone falling from the outside, they get vaporized. And out come their ashes, right? And, and, and there, there's all the information. But the equivalence principle tells you that if you fall in, if you're the person that falls in, you shouldn't notice, so you go in And, and there's always been this sense it's called black hole complementarity that actually both happen <laughs> so so both both things. the reason you allowed mm. both to happen, by the way, is because no contradictions emerge from both being true. so the, because uh, very subtle effects actually that that were took a long time to calculate, you might say, well, okay. So um, this was Leonard Susskind and other people, one of a great genius and, who drives a lot of this work, or did initially. And then, so he imagined, well, what happens if someone jumps in and someone collects the the information from their ashes, right, when they got incinerated, and then jumps in to meet them and says, look, I've got, I've got you know, <laughs> I saw you, here's a photograph of you. Uh, it turns out through and it's not an obvious calculation yeah. <laughs> but it turns out that because of the way that the time scales work by the time and it just it just uh, works by the time you've collected enough information to work out what's happening and then gone in to go and meet them and reveal the contradiction they've gone to the end of time It's too late. So you can't get in, you can't get in fast enough. And it's to do with the the way information is encoded and re-radiated, basically, in the black hole. It's very it's quite complicated. But there's a time scale associated with how long you have to wait to make sure that you've got the information in order to see the contradiction. And by the time you've got that and got in there, they've gone. See, Matt, this reminds so it, it, me. This reminds me it's, of some of it's our, unbelievable. It,
0: it, this reminds me of some of our uh, <laughs> chats down at the pub, where we often talk about what what happens when you uh, fall into a black hole. Like, and Matt Matt keeps telling me that I'm going to fall into the black hole, and then I'm going to be able to see the back of my own head. And, and whether that's true or not is almost irrelevant to the amount of sleep that I get that night. You know?
4: yeah. there's, some, there's some of that. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. It, the, the, the problem. It's easy to see what the problem is actually with with black holes, because when viewed from the outside, and we'll teach this in an undergraduate course, right? There's a thing again for the experts called the Schwarzschild metric, and it it looks like so if you if you uh, throw a clock into a black hole and watch it, then from your viewpoint outside, the clock ticks slower and slower, um, and what it does on the event horizon is it freezes. So from the outside, uh, time is changing quite dramatically as you get to the event horizon, and it eventually stops on the horizon. Um, You see that that's not a real problem. You can change things around, and and if you jump into the black hole, you see that time passes at the usual rate for yourself, which it always does, one second per second and so on. And that's just standard general relativity. Um, But a lot of the problem comes in quantum theory from that timescale problem. Um, when you when you adjust timescales, that that you start to get interesting thing happen, happening in the calculations, and when you when you make time stop from the point of view of someone outside, um, then it it gets complex, right? It gets it gets <laughs> difficult to understand. So that that's why that's why the, the fundamental reason why quantum field theory has a problem. Um, but it, what's remarkable, though, I should say the experts listening, they would jump in at this point. The point is that what what seems to have been found is these problems, all this weird stuff that I just talked about, has not required new physics. Hmm. It's required new mathematics and new understanding, but it's not required what we might call Planck-scale physics. So we used to say, well, these problems will be resolved when we have a quantum theory of gravity, and it doesn't seem to have required that. It it's it's pointing, as you said, it's pointing towards a deeper understanding of space and time, which is presumably a quantum theory of gravity. Um, but it didn't need that. It didn't need us to go, oh, well, there's something, there's some energies happening and things that we don't really understand. It doesn't seem to have required that. It seemed to require some quantum computing guys, ultimately. So oh, that's <laughs> go, oh, No, it's this and Brian, We know about that.
0: You mentioned worlds colliding. One of one of the things I was thinking about is uh, I-, I saw you talking about the multiverse and I wondered whether there's anything that we could understand about overlapping Big Bangs. Obviously, we can only see out to a certain point of our observable yeah. universe, but is it is it possible that two universes could overlap? And if so, would we ever know it?
4: Yeah, so the, the thing you're talking about is the so-called inflationary multiverse, where the, there's a... So we're pretty sure. Some people don't think so, but most most physicists I think think that before the hot Big Bang, so before the universe was hot and dense, that space time was still there hmm. and it was stretching very fast, which is a time we call inflation. And then the expansion, the inflationary expansion, stopped, and slowed down, and the energy that was driving it got sort of dumped into space and heated it up and made particles, and that's what we call the Big Bang. And then. The natural question to ask is, why did that inflating period stop at the same time everywhere? Why did it all stop at once? Could it not be there's a little patch here that stopped inflating and the rest of it carries on, and then another patch stops and the rest of it carries on? And so you're talking about, in some sense, multiple big bangs there, Mm. like multiple bubble universes being made all the time. And so I suppose your question is, can they be so close that they interact? Uh, People have thought about that. Um, where would you see it? You'd see it in the cosmic microwave background. So you would see um, some. If you imagine, in some sense, these two things just in very early in their development interacting, you'd see uh, some asymmetry, right? You'd see some direction in space where there was some difference. And the cosmic microwave background, this afterglow of the Big Bang, is very uniform indeed, with little ripples in it that we understand that are predicted from inflation. Um, but if there was regions where there was a, a, a real difference in in this picture, in the you could say in the density of matter there or the temperature of the cosmic microwave background or whatever it is, then people speculate that could be a, a signal that there was once a very slight interaction mm. with another of these bubbles. Um, there is a region in the CMB which is in in one part of the sky, which is statistically a little bit different from the rest, um, and and so, but not so much. And people have speculated that that is one of the explanations for it. Um, it's not known. It's not widely accepted that. I think it's just one of those things that it could just be statistics. It could be something interesting. Uh, you know, uh, I so but yes. So in principle, the answer is yes. In principle, yes. yeah, because I was it thinking, is possible you
0: know, Two repelling gravities meeting. What would what would happen?
4: It'd just change. That ultimately, the experimental observation would be it would change the the distribution of particles mm. in that in 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 that region. You know, somehow there'd be some signature. Because if you think, you know, if it made space expand a bit faster in that region, then the particles would be less densely scattered. Mm. If it made it go a bit slower, it'd be a bit more dense. And that's actually the explanation for the ripples in the CMB, by the way. The idea is that inflation, because of quantum mechanical fluctuations in the field that's driving inflation, called the inflaton field, inflation stops very slightly differently, at very slightly different times in different bits of the space time. And so you get bits that stretch out a bit more and bits that stretch a bit less, because the end of inflation is not instant. It's not literally the same time. And so that's the explanation for the um, the ripples in the density of particles in our universe, which ultimately led to the formation of the galaxies. Um, so you know, without those ripples, we wouldn't be here. Is a standard thing that's said, and it's true. Yeah. But they seem to come from quantum mechanical fluctuations in the universe when our patch of the universe was very small, much smaller than an atom. Yeah. It always does my head in when when, when like the,
1: the picture of the, the the cosmic microwave background is somehow a picture of something that's smaller than an, smaller than an atom.
4: Uh, yeah, or was I mean by the time it was that big, the, the universe, our universe was one thousand one hundred times less uh, d- smaller than it is today, right because the redshift is one thousand about eleven 1, hundred. Right. Okay. So yeah, so it was it was just over a thousand times smaller. In volume, then and is that the, the, the observable
1: universe presumably yeah. yeah yeah i've got one question jamie that i need to ask which is uh, there's it. the, the we've got on the podcast the space 2020 awards i won't i won't bore you with the some of the categories but uh, i want your nomination for the best bit of science this year I've, i'll give you the nominations i want your uh, opinion which which one you think is the best first one is phosphine in Ves- venus's clouds Finding an FRB in our own galaxy and sort of relating it to Magnetar. Mm. Finally, observing the CNO cycle in the sun. Hayabusa's mm. sample return. Or Vir- Virgo and LIGO spotting a black hole merger in the mass gap. <laughs> Which of those is your favorite science story? Or is there a better one? For the year, it sounds like your holographic one um, is better. To be honest, <laughs> if only I'd known.
4: Yeah, but it's so it's related to black hole research. I've I got most excited by black hole research in general, both the observations of the collisions and uh, mergers. And um, the 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 last time actually I, I saw Stephen Hawking gave a give a talk. It was one of his birthdays uh, in Cambridge, and he said it was just after the first. Observation of the mergers of black holes, pretty much confirming his area theorems. By the way, which are part of the fundamental work that he did, and he said that he was excited because he was. We're now into the observation, the the, the observational phase of, of of trying to understand black holes for the first time. So that is, I think, really profound. I'd add one though: is the is the vaccine.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to keep it space related, I mean, but yeah, I mean the vaccine. It's clear. Yeah, that's clearly the most amazing. It's an astonishing
4: yeah. story. Yeah, um, yeah, but so yeah, I would probably just go because I'm biased because I'm interested in black holes at the moment. So I go, you know, uh, the phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus. I think it's still disputed yeah. now, isn't it? Yeah. It's a very difficult measurement. Yeah, so we're we're not really sure about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the, the black hole mergers is just insane. I just can't believe we can see the, the ripples in space time. Neither could Einstein. He, he didn't think it was going to be possible, did he?
4: No. Uh, and, it, it, you know, it, I mean, I remember visiting LIGO in, um, when was it? 2008, I think. And even then, you know, people were really skeptical about this thing. You know, going, hey, really? You know, <laughs> we don't think you can do this. Yeah. Uh, and that's why Kip Thorne got the Nobel Prize. Yeah. I mean he drove that against tremendous opposition. Mm. People just thought it was an impossible measurement and th- and th- and then I think that we're surprised everyone's surprised the number of them i mean then you you get into a whole other thing, which is where are all these thirty solar mass black holes coming from yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know which is a which is a really but she's telling you something about the early universe it's telling you something about the first stars presumably mm. um and the, so yeah, that becomes interesting. And then you start thinking, well, so it's uh, another thing for the future. Is we're not really sure about the formation of the first stars in the universe. And um, this tells you something, I think, about that. But um, the, the square kilometre array that's been built now, Jodrell Bank has just been named I think it was today, actually, is the, the headquarters. Um, it's always been the headquarters for the mm. development of SKA, which is a big radio telescope array in Australia, primarily. And also, I think, hopefully, South Africa. And uh, that's going to be able to look at the formation of the first stars for the for pretty much the first time.
1: Yeah, I had in detail. Yeah, anyway. I had Emma Chapman on a few weeks ago, and and I read her book because yeah, and it's that's amazing. Mm. The first stars, that sort of early light of the universe. What what an incredible time to be alive if you're studying that.
4: It's wonderful because you don't actually see the stars in radio. You see them punching a hole <laughs> in the in the radio emission. Where? In the hydrogen emission line. So you see the holes punched in the universe, as it were. <laughs> the, or in the noise. Yeah. Let's say the radio, yeah. the radio noise um, by the stars. Yeah, it's
0: ridiculous. And talking of stars, Brian, I was I was reading about Breakthrough Starshot, and if we could send one today and see the results, what would surprise you the most if we went to Alpha Centauri?
4: I think it. I think the interesting thing it's not the star actually; it's the exoplanets. So it's the it's the system um you know we 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 want to go to another solar system we know that most stars have them now um but we we really don't you know that we know something about the exoplanets but um you know as we know in our solar system it's like you know we observed our solar system much more closely than we've observed any exoplanet system hmm. and we didn't really know anything about the places till we went there you know, to be yeah. honest. No, I no. We we still thought <laughs> there <laughs> could be
0: yeah. in the nineteen fifties mm.
4: you you could have argued Patrick Moore, I remember Patrick Moore arguing in the fifties about life on Venus, mm. you know, until we started pointing radio telescopes at them really and seeing the temperature. Uh Mars, very surprising when Mariner four was it, went past in the sixties, the early sixties and saw a surface that didn't have vegetation, yeah. canals, even in, you know, we had to go. Well, it's like Pluto as well, isn't
0: so, it? I
1: mean, Pluto, who would have, who would have thought it looked yeah. like that? I mean, like, and that's only a few years yeah. ago. And that's with Hubble and everything else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, Jamie, do, yeah. should we ask our, our, our usual two questions at the end? Yeah, go on then. First question <laughs> is, a science hero or a hero of yours that you would bring back from the past... To show them what's around today, to try and
4: blow their mind. Who, who would it be? You know, I mean, there are there are. <laughs> there's obviously so many really obvious answers. I'm trying to think of a not obvious answer. Um, I think not obvious, right? Would be give us another year or so, and I'd love Stephen Hawking to be able to see what's happened. Uh, I, you know, particularly with this solution to the problem that he posed back in the 1970s. Um, We're not quite there yet, so I'd wait a year or two, and then I'd I'd, uh, show Stephen what's happened. I'm getting very excited about your book now. Hurry up yeah. and write it. <laughs> sort <Yeah>. it out. <laughs> yeah, we are. We're hurrying up. It's got to Look, uh, I'll be in. I'll be in. I'll be in court if it's not out next <laughs> Right. Okay. Brilliant.
0: <laughs> there we go. We've got a date. Wow, wow, that that's seen. great. I, I, nothing, nothing. better than the
4: threat of jail. Or
0: so. And um, Brian, I, I did. I did mention uh, that we have a space playlist um, on our Spotify uh, channel. Uh, what would mm. be your space song? Well, I. Um, Would go for
4: off-piste Sibelius, Fifth Symphony, Third Movement. And when you hear it, especially if, like me, you know, I wasn't really particularly knowledgeable about classical music or anything. I've grown up listening to electronic music and so on and making that music. And, um, but recently, just listening to that, particularly that period, for me, the 1910 to 1920, maybe a bit before these people, Sibelius, Mahler. These that they just harmonically, you'll recognize it. Um, but when you listen to it, if you know anything about science fiction or listen to watch science fiction films, you'll hear every science fiction theme in that music. I mean, very vividly interstellar. I think Hans Zimmer did say that he, Sibelius, was one of his inspirations for the theme of interstellar. It's not a sign, obviously, it's written in 1914, 15, 16, that period in Finland. It's a hymn to nature. It's about nominally about swans taking off a lake, but it's also uh, undoubtedly about the about the beauty and power and mystery of nature itself. But you you hear everybody's you know taken every composer that's ever written anything for science fiction has listened to that, okay. <laughs> and it's in there. So it's one of the most cosmic pieces of music. I think that oh, I know yeah. of. it's beautiful. So it colourful. Absolutely, absolutely
0: incredible. And for those of you who didn't watch mm. uh Brian's um show at the Barbican, is that are you still able to to get a ticket for that stream on the Barbican site, do you know?
4: No, I think you're not. Um it was one of those <laughs> things which was a one off and uh you had to listen to it. You had to book beforehand. It was a live performance. And so no, um but the, you the next isn't time it gonna be that- on the radio? <laughs> It'll be on the radio, yeah. Um so yes, on Radio Three, and you'll be able to hear that. Yeah, that's true on BBC Sound. You'll be able to listen to the concert and and what I said. Um, but it, vi- visually, no. Um, visually, the next time you'll be able to see that is on my tour, which is uh, So I'm touring the, the October next year, end of September, and October next year, in um, in arenas, and uh, the the Sibelius will be there. And this thing, this O'Neill cylinder behind me fully realised by a great artist called Eric Vernquist, who's in Stockholm. Um, he's done loads of work on it. So you can come and see 35 metre wide LED screens Whoa. with a massive sound system and my version of 2001, which is essentially what I've done. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the and, and then we problem. hope, the hope is sometime in 22, probably the end of 22, to bring it back with an orchestra. So we're, our our hope is that we'll be able to put it put the show a different version of the show into royal albert hall maybe bridgewater hall in manchester with a live orchestra
0: i really hope so because it was so it was just so perfect i can't endorse it enough and you mentioned electronic music (laughs) i wouldn't be doing my job Uh, i I need to keep my employers happy by mentioning roland I, i know that you obviously uh used to used to uh used used to play synthesizers in a band and 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 still play um, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about your history with Roland?
4: My Roland history, go. I mean, I was always Roland, actually. So when I started, so I joined a band called Dare when I was eighteen, which was a band formed by Darren Wharton. who used to be the keyboard player in Thin Lizzy. And so he came with this great legacy of great synths. We used to use an OB eight. That that we were very lucky if it lasted an hour on stage. The OB eight, and he had a MIDI <laughs> retrofit as well, and it was just you know all over the place. So um, we. Uh, so we moved very quickly. I, I had a, the first Roland I had was a JX8P, actually, which I bought with the advance yeah. that we got when we signed a deal with AM. So I did a JX8P and then a, so, shortly after a JX10, and then the S50, which I used extensively, actually. And I loved the S50 because it was good for live performance because everyone had S900s as well at the time, you know, the Akai. But um, the S50 mm. had the monitor. And because you're loading floppy discs on stage, <laughs> right between songs, uh, you really want to know if that's worked. Um, you know, so I had two boxes of yeah. firmware back up. And and just the fact that you could have a monitor sat there so you could see it really easily was really great. I think so. I love the S50, um, and then um, we used a MC300 actually to as the sequencer. Um, so, so I used it on stage for many years, and always, I think I. I I don't think I ever did a gig without the JX 10 and the MC300 with that band. Amazing! Uh, and I've still got the JX 10 well, We know it's in. It's in. The, We've still got the JX 10 It works. Yeah. It, some of the keys don't work, but I think all the oscillators work. I think it's all behaving itself. So, um, but now I've got the Phantom to plug into it. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah, I'll play it off the Phantom because the Phantom is. I mean, the GX10 actually one of the most reliable synths I've ever had. It never, never let us down on stage. And the S50 didn't really. I mean, very rarely missed a, a load of a disc. So what Unlike kind of the OB 8 yeah. was, was <laughs> That nightmare. sounds terrifying, changing yeah. floppy
0: discs on stage. What kind of sounds were your favourites in those early days?
4: We used, I mean, um, we used a combination. We we also had a DX7, I'm sorry to say. So we, we used, the DX7 All used right. to do the really twin. I had a D50 eventually, which we used quite a lot yeah. as well. But they the, the, we tended to use like a, a sort of a real harshy kind of rock piano on the DX seven with a with a bed on the on the JX ten lead lines. There's a song called "Into the Fire" on the first Air album out of the Silence, which is a which is the JX ten brass kind of lead. You know, so I used to use that a lot. Um, nice. And we used to use the S fifty. Um, we used it for some backing vocal samples. So we kind of in the in the late eighties we were. Um, in some of the songs, we had these huge bits of backing vocals, and so, and occasionally when we wanted that, we'd use, we'd have a, the drummer would have a click, and we'd we'd trigger uh, backing vocal samples, which is it is terrifying. Yeah. Because the one thing is, you for me, because I'm on stage, and, and if I load the wrong disc, if you've got a backing vocal sample, the wrong backing vocal sample comes in. Oh my god! You know, so you see the wrong song, and then your 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 secret is blown. There. Yeah.
0: We've both seen our fair share of on stage because we've both worked in the music industry for years. And I, I, being a tour manager, amount of times I've seen stuff on the side of the stage that just your heart drops because people look around and they, it's like, who's going to do I, something I've, here, I've, you know?
1: I've actually been in that situation of loading up the Pope's vocals. Remember that gig at Westminster Cathedral? jamie oh, yeah. I, I had to I had to yeah. load the pope's yeah. vocals onto a onto a sampler, and it was like the same exactly the same situation. floppy disc had to hope that it's the right yeah. one, and the bloke in the orchestra is playing each of the each of the things it's like please be the right yeah, one yeah, please yeah. be the right one it's like, oh my God
4: Yeah, I used to turn it down, so I went to a phase of having the s fifty and i'd load the the uh the disc and I, i'd always turn it down when i was loading the disc and i look at the screen and make sure it said the right song name and oh, then i turn yeah. it up again and i got into that habit you know but we had i had like seven or eight keyboards on stage it was ludicrous like rick Wakeman.
0: are you still recording music like i mean is it just a hobby now or are you actually like recording your own stuff still
4: no it's kind of a it's kind of a hobby i mean i tend to play piano more now so i tend to sit there playing piano um but I th- I've got started playing around again I got the jack 10 app storage basically and started playing around mm. and now as you know I've got a, a phantom to play with <laughs> so I'm gonna start so I probably will start um well what's great about the phantom is piano. you've got
0: the v piano technology in the phantom so you can mm. model any kind of piano you want yeah I, I can't wait to hear what you uh what you get up to
4: yeah uh, no I can't wait to start playing with it because it's a it's Quite the machine. You know, that's the thing. You know, I could have done these gigs that I did in the 80s with just that. And I'd, yeah. I'd, uh, <laughs> the, I had a, but at the height of it, the height of the madness, I had a JX10, a JX8P in front of me, and a D50 on top. So I had three in front, JX10, JX8P, D50. And they had two DX7s on the side. Uh, the S50 sat there at the back. And I had an S900 as well, because if you use that mm. voice sound on the S900, you could never wow. quite get it on the S50 and then 2 DMP7s the yamaha's that's the, 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 you know, just random <laughs> it was just literally that sort of crap you know it's just absolutely wow. ridiculous but and then the MC the MC300 as well on a little thing there because i had to because i had yeah. two discs right MC300 and S50 all over and the S900 so actually three. must
0: have been so stressful because i sort of think about the modern <laughs> bands young bands that i work with that we endorse going out and their stage fright and, and just trying to, you know, just get everything nailed, do a good show. But the, the idea of, you know, that that time when not only did you want to entertain people and nail your parts, but, but all of that technology that could and did go wrong, that's terrifying.
4: It, well, yeah, and my first professional gig, by the way, was um, supporting Jimmy Page. So oh talk about God. stress. No yeah. pressure. i <laughs> don't want to mess this up. And uh, then we, then then Gary Moore, and then uh, and then Europe. We supported Europe for ages, like sixty odd gigs, I think. Over yeah, three that and a half was months. more normal. So they were quite big gigs in the end for, for three boxes of floppy discs. You know, did but you it ever always, see, something always did, went wrong?
0: Did you ever notice Jimmy watching you from the side of stage, just with some he, every gig, nerves?
4: Every single gig. Oh, oh That's God. what's amazing about him. What a, you know? What a, for a young
0: band? Yeah. We like,
4: were just starting out. Yeah. And he watched every night.
0: Amazing. Yeah, incredible. One last thing we were going to ask you to do, and you can totally say no, is we are wondering if you could just do a little uh, welcome to the Interplanetary Podcast, or you're listening to the Interplanetary Podcast.
4: Uh, well, I, I can't do as well as Brian Blessed. I remember on the Infinite Monkey, he was on the Infinite Monkey Cage once, and he, he just said, Robin into my co-host, said, it's like going on holiday on a dormant volcano.
2: I've been
0: Brian. Blaster. Yeah, it, it was, it was, it oh, was I, so insane. Right, uh, Matt, I I mentioned to Brian the interview where I mean, it was the the interview we did with him. We did it inside the um, uh, the BIS, and it was a maybe three and a half or four hour interview where his manager, <laughs> which just kept sort of looking at us and was like, you know, like, stop. But he, he was just, he wanted to just carry on. He was telling us these stories about, yeah, like the Bermuda Triangle and punching polar bears in the face. And me and Matt were like, <laughs> yeah. this is incredible. Like, I don't want it repeat, to end.
4: You can't repeat most of it. It's unbroadcastable.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
4: I remember yeah. The one, <laughs> yeah. He, just, he was sat there. Well, I'm not going the unbroadcastable ones, but he was sat there. And we were talking about Mars, I think. And he just went, Brian! To me, and I was like, "What?" And he went, <laughs> "Why can't I fly through the middle of Jupiter? It's a gas planet." we <laughs> <laughs> just like, oh. <laughs>
0: "Don't
4: know." Oh, wow. There's nothing to do with what he's talking about.
0: <laughs> you can't. Incredible.
4: <laughs> you <Yeah, but> know. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I can. The interplanetary
1: podcast is alive. There we go. There was our Brian
0: Cox interview. There we go. I hope love. you enjoyed it.
1: Um, yeah. No, I love
3: this guy. He's uh, he's at the he's at the top there with forever with, with those that we were always wondering, who is the next Carl Sagan, right?
0: Mm. Neil deGrasse Tyson,
3: Brian wow. Cox. Who else is at there at the top of the best science communicators?
0: Mm. It's those two and us, isn't it? Pretty much. And us four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh... <That's>
1: <laughs> what are you guys doing this 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 week for for Christmas?
2: Oh, well, I'm, I'm experiencing something akin to escape from New York. I'm basically snake <laughs> right now trying to make sure that we get out of Norway before everything closes. Like Germany, Belgium and Netherlands have all, all stopped flights out of the from the UK uh, and probably to the UK. And Norway is considering it. We've just moved our flight to tomorrow instead of the day after. And hopefully I'll be home with my mum <laughs> by, by <laughs> Christmas Day. So keep your fingers crossed mm-hmm. for me, Spodcats. Cats. Oh, we, uh, we'll make that Sainsbury's advert extra poignant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <it
1: will>. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Julio, what about yourself? Well, uh, as Chris mentioned, when the Netherlands went into hard lockdown, which I have to say is quite more relaxed than the French hard lockdown. In France, you had to stay at home. Here, people can be out, outside. Um uh, We just cancelled everything. We, I was planning to have my sisters over. They live in Germany, but it's just so many risks that are not worth it for an artificial date that we choose to, that we call christmas yeah we can meet later once this is over mm.
1: jamie what about you and and by the way jamie is i chose the quote at the beginning of the show especially for you oh. but, you know you know it, it tied Don't in make me cry tied again. in with the winter solstice but it's good to have it's, it's good to have you it's on really
0: it's great to be back uh for this special one and um we'll have to do it again in the in the future because you know I just love talking about stuff I don't understand <laughs> so that's why uh that's why Brian Cox was the perfect person you know talking about I mean I literally I told you and this is true I couldn't sleep for days before because I kept thinking about big bang questions to ask him I thought I'm never going to have another chance and so uh you know he absolutely indulged us so yeah, it's been it's been fantastic. So yeah, I'm going home. Well, I am near home for Christmas, and um, hopefully see a few family at distance on Christmas Day. And uh, and and that's me. I just spent a f- near fortune in Waitrose, and I think I'm looking to consume at least ninety five percent of that, <laughs> 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 including Matt. Have you ever had those um, Biscoff ice creams?
1: Oh no, you know
0: Biscoff, the biscuits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do an ice cream and it is, I mean, it's to die for. It's no, nice.
1: Oh, I might. I'm, so there we go. If I'm still looking
0: to get, still getting to look to get some free food from this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, that's a good. Get in touch. We'll give you our address. I'll yeah. go
1: out and buy some and, and that'll be my, uh, that'll be my Christmas pudding. There we go. Done.
0: But yeah. What, I, your, what, your about, your what about yourself, Matthew?
1: Oh, I'm just going to, yeah. I'm just going to stay, stay at home, hunker down. Like Julio said, look, it it's gonna be it's just one day. It's just one day, and we'll get through it. Next year is gonna be absolutely awesome when all this has kind of you know blown over a little bit. And uh, just exactly. I just want all the Spudcats cats to stay safe. That's why that's why this episode safe, That's why please. this episode is so long. Is to keep why, them why was, why <laughs> to was keep Jerry... them in the house longer.
3: <laughs> Matt, why was January 1st? Why, why do we choose New Year's when we choose New Year's? Is there, you, you're, 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 uh, you're, you're the closest I have here to an astronomer. Why is it not any other, why is it not much in one of the solstices, for instance?
1: Yeah, I, I, I can't help feeling that it's drifted from the solstices, surely. All these things are a kind of fudge, aren't they, over the years to try and make the calendar fit.
2: The calendars yet- are a
1: mess, aren't they? They're a total mess.
2: The big question for me is why did they choose the Brexit deadline for the 1st of January? <laughs> oh, God. Had to be. Had to be, had to
1: be sometime. What a come, though.
0: Unreal. Maybe ah. Because people
3: are not reading the news that day? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Very Who true. Knows? Very true. Well, you know. But hey, next year, maybe the four of us can get together. You know? I'd love that. Share some food. Well, I'd love we to should give have... you
2: all just hugs that go on longer than they should. Yeah. I,
1: look, I, I reckon that ep- would be nice. episode 250, we should, all, we should all fly over to Holland and stop at Julio's place and do a podcast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Do, do,
3: a, do, a, do a podcast. First of, all, first of all, I'd love that. We can go cycling as well. It's very nice here. But we said we would do Paris. I think we it we oh, yeah. to Paris. Oh at yeah! at some
1: point to go there and do a show there we should definitely do yeah we should definitely do Issa
0: Paris yeah but Aww. you can't get those marijuana stuffed turkeys <laughs> in Paris <laughs> but you can get heroin so, you <laughs> can't
1: you can't have a smoke and a pancake and <laughs>
0: <laughs> we're just kidding of course we're just kidding um,
1: alright well I think that's it that's it you and your better you go and and cook, your space cake. I better go
0: and cook a roast
2: dinner yep. lovely to see you guys
1: a great, Good lovely to see, see you all. Yeah, it's great to together. have you, we'll you on the Chaotic, a chaotic podcast. I dragged <laughs> everyone in at the last minute. They didn't even know they were doing it. Awesome. Bye, bye, spaghetti. Goodbye. Bye.